All right. And welcome back to another episode. I'm Wesley Livingston. I'm Mike Scaramella. And we're your hosts here at the Culture and Sports Podcast. And today we have an extremely special guest um, here with us today. Um, he's a sports attorney, an educator, a leader, um, currently a law professor at Penn State University, where he also serves as the university's athletic integrity officer and the president here at uni- uh, Culture and Sports, uh, Robert Bolin. How are you doing today? Gentlemen, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. I probably should throw one more Penn State uh, connection in just to keep everybody happy. I also teach in the labor school. Uh, the school okay. Oh, very nice. Excellent. And uh, I love I love both the law school and labor school equally. So uh, they're my two favorite children. So we can't leave any of them out. Can't leave any of them out. <laughs> We're going to have to get into all of that then. Huh? Perfect. Well, we do definitely want to start at the beginning. Uh, I mean, we want to kind of know how you got involved in sports to begin with. I mean, and where this passion kind of came from uh, in the beginning. Well, I think, I think like most kids, everybody loves sports. It's, it is one of the big, huge cultural connectors. Uh, and ironically enough, I, I sort of had the, the twofold. My, my athletic career ended in college, uh, playing football and wrestling at Columbia. I went on to grad school and worked at the University of Tennessee and really decided I, I felt most alive when I was working in sports. Uh, I worked in the athletic department at Columbia after I graduated. I worked in the uh, athletic department at the University of Tennessee. And I really was intended to kind of have a career in sports that was meaningful. And I, strangely enough, thought I could do it a couple of different ways. But ultimately, it kind of appealed to me that going to law school was the right answer. That 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 being a lawyer and representing uh, representing players or representing coaches or being involved in, in sports as a lawyer. And, and, and this was in the early 90s. That, so... The law degree sort of still was the specialized graduate degree in sports. So off I went to get a law degree uh, to have a sports law career and immediately did something very different as a prosecutor and some other things. So my path is a little windy like a lot of people. Uh, I, I think I wanted to be a football coach for a while, but my mother didn't want her Ivy League. who was a school principal, didn't want her Ivy League <laughs> son to be, to be a, a, a football coach. If she had only an idea of how much football coaches make now, right? right. I was just going to bring that up. I was like, these guys, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They did a lot of time as well, too. They put in a lot of. It's a lot they, put, of they put in a lot of time. Of I mean, I, yeah, but you know what? It really allowed you to, to wear a bunch of different hats. You know, it's not like you got. You know, a lot of people will get. Uh, you know, kind of comfortable in in one spot and not move around. And I feel like you had you had good people around you, a good team, maybe good mentors. To kind of shoot you forward in the right direction. Theoretically, I've never been able to hold a job, but but I've always been able to hold the job and leave them and, and move on to what was next. It's so <laughs> a good a way to put it. I've had a couple really good good arcs in my career. I was a player agent for about ten years. I was uh, I, I had some stints as a judge and a practicing lawyer, and, uh, and 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 those were all really rewarding. And then I kind of hit my most rewarding thing in two thousand and one. I never have to worry about my anniversary date because it was September 11th of 2001. Oh, wow. I taught yeah. the first class at NYU, and the rest was history. I became a full-time faculty member shortly after that. I became the chair of the department, and, and I was all in. It was uh, it was the best job I've ever had. So even though I don't primarily teach right now, I have a I have an administrative position, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more as we go on. Teaching was always at the centerpiece of what I did. And there's one thing I think about teaching, something, and also involving study like sports. The thing about teaching is you're always a smarter practitioner when you teach it. So you're involved, you're involved not only in the work you do, but you're in the, involved in explaining it to people and helping guide their careers in it. So if you think about a career being a collaborative art, 
the idea that a lawyer has a practice model that isn't like just a, not just a job, but it's a practice. It's things they grow with. All those are things I've done, and it's allowed me to really. It's allowed me to always choose things that are interesting, always things that are cutting edge, and things that are next. And a lot of that, you know, the importance of sports hasn't changed for me from the time I was seven. And we'd all gather around the TV on Saturday and watch Wide World of Sports. It, it is. It is the biggest cultural connector in the world, and it still is for me. Absolutely, and and for us too. I mean, we've we've played sports our whole lives. I mean, we know how important it was for the camaraderie. That's just, how we met. Yeah, yeah that's we, how we, we met, met in the first right? place. Yeah, playing but, baseball on the baseball field. But it's just crazy. It's just crazy to think that you know that you know the culture. I mean, it actually stems from from back then. You know, from a young age. You know, you get that camaraderie. You know, you have that culture, and you know, if it's a good culture and you got lucky with good coaches and things like that. Then you're lucky enough to, to bring that forward in your, your career and things like that. And, and it you definitely build, that you've done that. You build lifelong relationships and friendships, you know, also. Cause I, we still talk to some of our coaches. We still, you know, talk to old teammates to this day. And it's, it's because of those, those times together and like the lessons we learned and the camaraderies and the, you know, just those experiences that last forever. And that's what sports kind of brings. It, it's the, the most table. intense coaching. Coaching is the most intense teaching relationship. It's the one that, it has a performance aspect, it, it has an immediacy, and it has a place where, you know, hope you, I hope you loved your high school English teacher and you needed and you needed to know how to use an adverb, but <laughs> not everybody's quite as bought into that as they are about their, about their exactly. team and their identity. So, yeah, sports is by far the most intense relationship, and I have a great passion for coaches and wanting to help them. So a lot of the work I've written on with, with, with you all at, at Culture and Sports has been on how to protect coaches and how to see the, and how to see the pitfalls. Uh, I think most coaches are extraordinary, but there are challenges. And sometimes they just get out of their orbit occasionally and need, need, need some correction. And what, what would you say, you know, just, just uh, an example, do you have an example of maybe a challenge that, you know, you might be able to, to help a coach out with that might be listening to the show right now? I mean, you know, I, I think about what my what my current work is as, a, as an athletic integrity officer, and to some degree, I'm charged with investigating coaches. But I also think I'm charged with preventing problems for coaches. Yeah. And and I think if I can work with them on prevention, help them manage situations, help them help them manage their own reaction, I I help them be the best version of themselves sometimes and avoid problems before they ever happen. Do you find out the more the more that you do it? Um, I mean, the more you learn about it, the better you get. Obviously, I, I feel like a lot of the times yeah, when you teach I, I, something, I, I'm still pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I don't mean bad, but I, I think it's always complex. And I think that I think for a lot of coaches, and this is maybe I don't want to get too much into this because we may want to talk about some more subjects and we'll leave it open. But the ground between coaches and their teams and their environment is shifting quickly. We're definitely in changing times, and while I think really good coaches are smart and never fall never fall victim to problems, some are find it hard to adjust. Some find it hard to deal with deal with the way players are today or the way parents are today, and just thinking about that conversation and how all of those things come come together, it's much easier to solve those problems to to kind of pick that, those knots one at a time as opposed to all at once or in a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so did you get into a lot of that, um, you know, your, your sports lawyer, sports attorney, did you get a lot in a, a lot of that in the beginning? And, is, and, and did that kind of shape your way towards kind of your next endeavor? 
early on in, well, it's funny you say that. I, I didn't necessarily think about that, but early on in my career, I, I got to be really close to a number of, of sort of famous coaching agents. Probably, uh, I would say one of the one of the one of the people who's probably the most famous coaching agent in the world is a guy by the name of Bob Lamont. He has about ten NFL head coaches even now. Bob's in his mid seventies, but Bob and I really have hit it off. He and his wife are like surrogate parents to me now. But Bob, uh, but I didn't want to compete with Bob because he was a friend, and because well, I couldn't. He was so much better than I was. Uh, his practice was so you know, ten NFL head coaches, another ten general managers, a bunch of position coaches. He pretty much has the game, uh, the game kind of sewn up. So I didn't want to compete in that space. I wanted to kind of find a way to work that was a complementary way. So I ended up representing a bunch of coaches who were getting fired in their out packages. Huh. Okay. So that's not exactly how you want to build a career, but it's a great <laughs> way to understand how relationships go wrong. It's yeah. also a great way to kind of help the person through the crisis. And, you know, this was usually performance-based. They, they were, you know, they didn't win enough so their athletic director or their team was going to get rid of them. And I was usually negotiating the package that got them out the door. So I wasn't getting the part of the big money on the front end. Is, is this mostly college or professional coaches? I or? a little bit of both. Um, okay. But I, you know, and, and they, it was infrequent. But it gave me a really good perspective on the relationship and how to, and how to write the contract and how to ask for a, a position that put the coach back on the track of their life. Uh, there's so, a, there's so, a famous story. There's a famous story that when you think about it, uh, ultimately that like there's a great story that only there are only two kinds of coaches, them that's been fired and them that's gonna be. And uh, <laughs> you know, how do you how do you how do you deal with a crisis like that? It's like you know every every player gets cut or or eventually has their career end for them maybe not under the circumstances they want. But working people don't think about that necessarily the same way. So that became a really good thing to help me understand it. And in my role now that I have at Penn State as Athletic Integrity Officer, where I'm, I'm trying to make sure that the university's athletic department functions in a way that meets all its promises to its community, to the law, to everyone, I think the coaches are an important constituency. And uh, you know, parents are an important constituency. The student-athletes are an important constituency. The good of the sport and, 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 and honor and decency and integrity are all important constituencies. But I think the coaches as humans are an important con constituency. And, and, and I, I think I have some experience now in, in, in having some empathy and understanding and how to help them. Yeah, excellent. excellent. Um, I understand you, you spent some time at NYU and uh, Ohio University um, working on what's called the sports business. Can you, can you kind of uh, explain yeah. and kind of... Yeah, I, can, I, I, I love to talk about this because these are my happiest years. My, the happiest time I've had in my life is teaching. Excellent. And, the best thing I ever did was say yes to NYU when they told me, we'd like you to teach a class. And I said, yes. I didn't ask how much they would pay. I, I, didn't, ask <laughs> I'm in. I didn't ask anything else. I just said yes. And, and, and I kept saying yes for about 14 or 15 years there. And then I kind of got and NY, the NYU program that I helped build from sort of ground, ground level grew to about 800 students. I, uh, I five degree programs. I did hospitality, tourism, and sports management. And had the first graduate degree in, in, in a master's in sports business as part of it that I taught a class, the first class in that program, helped build it with a number of other faculty. And this was, this was my baby. I, I will never have a, I'll never have a program that I'll, I'll see through from infancy. to. The, it was, it was the first of its kind, wasn't it? It was, it was it kind was, of new to. It was an early one. It certainly was the first in a big city and it got copied a lot. So 
in many ways, it's my it's my happiest time, my greatest accomplishment of time at NYU. I got recruited away to lead the program at Ohio University. Ohio University is the first graduate program studying sports as a business in the world. It started in 1967. I did two years kind of leading the graduate program that was the the powerhouse in it, the, the world-ranked number one program, MBA, MSA, Masters of Sports Administration, alumni going back 51 years, 12 uh, athletic directors is among its alumni ranks. So a really exciting program, very selective. They only take about 20 people a year, uh, well-funded, really hard to get into, but it's a great experience. And, and that was an awesome experience. And a lot of my time there taught me, it's kind of funny, I was teaching future college athletic directors. And what was I seeing? I was seeing college sports become far more complex, far more difficult. I was seeing athletic directors and coaches fired from mistakes along the way, whether it was Title IX, whether it was the failure to handle, handle issues that were important, whether they were integrity issues. You can think about just kind of across the board that there have just been so many scandals in college athletics that you even get the name of the institution and cost yeah. you know yeah. hundreds of millions, oh, yeah. billions of dollars. Uh, so that those things were going on, and I was sending people off to do it. I I started teaching to that. I started teaching to, and, I, and I'm an old football guy. So what was I what was what was I thinking about? There's an old saying in the NFL that the quarterback doesn't get sacked by one of the defensive linemen. They get sacked because you run a free blitzer at them. You know, you don't. You, yeah, once in a while the defensive end can beat the tackle and get a sack, but more often than not, it's running somebody free at them. The undesignated, the overloader, the un, unblocked blitzer. Right. And I started thinking about who the unblocked blitzer is that's going to get an athletic director or a coach in their career, because they're all prepared for all those other issues, right? They're prepared yeah. for I need to win games, I need to earn, I need to raise money, I need to keep the stadium running, I need to have these things. Keep an eye on my players, I need to make sure facilities are, yeah. Yeah, what they're, what they're not necessarily prepared for, maybe maybe an issue where the medical system didn't work, or maybe an issue where Title IX got involved or the, and the coach wasn't responsive enough, maybe disciplinary issues, maybe student conduct issues, maybe coaching abuse issues, a lot of things that we didn't plan on out there are all things that are the reality. So what was I trying to do? I was trying to teach people to, to plan for the unblocked blitzer. To, well, I'm to, thinking that a lot of these guys, they don't realize a lot of the things that they're going to be facing. So just in, in, in order to have some education on, hey, look, this there's possibility that this, this stuff could happen. you got to keep an eye out for it. You know, if somebody's doing this, you know, you got to make sure and react or do certain the, things. to the awareness, the awareness of those things, the recognition, yeah. You know, it's, it's like a chessboard. Every, every, every piece on the chessboard can take the king. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you need to you need to have the power to, to understand how they attack and how they can be asymmetrical in their attack. So that was a lot of what I did. And then I got this call one day from, from the deputy general counsel at Penn State uh, asking for some names to recommend to take this job as athletic integrity officer. It's the second person they ever had in it. It was a job that was very important to their recovery from the Sandusky uh, issues. It was a job that was initially mandated as part of a settlement decree and now was something they were going to continue on their own as part of a what I would call basically a self, uh, a self essentially undertaken integrity program. Not well, they, I mean, I feel like you, you almost have to have that these days. I mean, it's it's almost a necessity. I mean, you, it, isn't it remarkable? It's going to cut. 
It's going to nope. be so much more beneficial to have that than to just let it ride, you know, just to let it go. So I, I, I say that the position has not been copied that many places, but yeah, I think it, I thought it was the most unique position I ever, I ever heard about. And while I ne didn't necessarily want the job, I came to interview for it certainly because I thought it was interesting to talk about, and I ultimately decided to take it. I thought I had to to, to, to go do this for a while because that's the other view I had about being a professor. I was never just in the faculty room. I was always out trying to prove it in the real world, whether it was in my consulting practice, whether it was in creating opportunities with my students, whether it was in creating partnerships. We have to, you know, I think I believe in a very activist academy where we kind of have to prove our value in the, in, in the real world every day. Yeah, you have uh, to practice these things. You have to I, put them into I, practice. I can teach it to you, but if I'm out doing it too and showing you and bringing home examples, it's a whole lot better, right? It's, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll have That's to do right. that one of these days. We'll have to go out there and I want to I want to learn a couple of things and it should be definitely interesting. You go you go behind you go behind the scenes mini stadium or anything like that. You can your experience just gets richer. You know, you can I mean, this is something most sports fans will smile at, but one of the one of the things people were getting in newly built stadiums, they were getting a beer room built in. A beer room? Basically, it was basically you'd pipe the entire state. If it was a new stadium, you'd pipe the entire stadium so beer could be kept at a central location, and you could go via the tap in seconds to any place you pulled the tap in the stadium. Huh. It, oh, it saved a lot of money because you could get larger kegs. You could store them safely. You didn't have to transport them. There were no workers' comp injuries from you doing it. But, yeah, who would have thunk a beer room? That sounds fantastic. What a great idea. You feel like we would have thought about that a long time ago. Sounds like something in your house. Like <laughs> <laughs> you know, can you imagine, imagine if you can put the tap in every room then, too? Oh, that'd be yeah, great. Right? Yeah, I'd never leave the house. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It, it's, a remarkable, it's a remarkable thing that that was a piece of what, what stadiums were transforming to do. Luxury boxes and club seats were drawing a lot of transformation. So we, you know, if you stay in sports for just a little while, there are so many changes that, you, that it's hard to see them come and go. Now, I've been around long enough that I've actually now watched some come go and come back a little bit. But it's interesting oh, yeah. to think about how we're, how we're on the precipice of, of a constantly changing field of business. And if you think about it, sports as a, if you aggregate all sports, throw the entertainment aspect in, throw the travel aspect in, sports is about the 10th largest segment of, of, of the global economy. So it's, it's not a small business, and even though COVID did a significant job interrupting it or slowing it down and changing it, it still went on even in COVID. It's still, yeah. it's still operating machine, yeah. It's still. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's got this whole social force, and then it's got this powerful business that runs with it. And if people could actually learn how to incorporate the culture and the, and the things that they've learned in these sports and bring it on to their careers and do things like that, as long as they've had good experiences, of course. Uh, there's many bad ones. Well, even the bad ones can help. Yeah. You, can, you can learn from the bad experiences. Absolutely. It's kind of the learn what not to do. to walk away from some of the crashes, right? If they're not too yeah, serious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Some, as long yeah, as you, you walk can, away from yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you walk away from them and you get better and you go to the next thing, you know, and then you'll be good, I feel. That's right. Um, so kind of keeping it somewhere similar where we're at. Um, on July 1st of this year, um, players are now able to be paid on their name, image, and likeness. Um, I kind of just want you to, what does, that, what does that mean for an integrity officer? What does that mean for, you know, does that change your, your daily routine? Is, does that make you want to go maybe back into agent, player agency? No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But let me let me let me share. If I were a normal integrity officer and not me, yeah. I would tell you I would tell you that it wouldn't change a whole lot. You'd be worried about the policy. You'd be worried about how you implemented it. Hey, I'm somebody who, before I went to law school, wrote a, wrote a, wrote a paper in graduate school about the first recognition of the rights of uh, name, image, and likeness, a case called Zucchini versus Scripps Howard Broadcaster. It was about a guy who got shot out of the cannon. Shot and out of a cannon? He got shot out of a cannon. He was a circus act. Oh. He was a human <laughs> cannonball. Huh. And, the news, and the news station basically filmed his entire act. They showed him getting in the cannon. They showed him getting shot out. They showed him falling in the net farther out. And he sued the, the broadcasters saying, you stole my entire act. Yeah, and then he broadcasted it over national television. Yeah. And put it out there. And they said, no, no, we have a First Amendment right to do it. We're a news network. And the Supreme Court in 1971, recognizing state law property rights, the rights to name, image, and likeness, added those as protected rights of people who were exercising in the stream of commerce. So I wrote this paper in graduate school, my master's program in communications. So the fact that I wrote a paper about the origins of NIL that got published in a, in a, in a competition somewhere along the line, and I represented athletes, and now I work at a university, so I'm implementing this policy. Yeah, this is pretty much my life come back around full circle. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah that's, full that's, circle that's right awesome. there. So, so I have had a lot of NIL time and experience. So I'm working hard in the implementation. Uh, I'm working hard on, on I'm working on the policy. I was lucky enough to kind of be tapped by our by our general counsel to look at to look and work with our government relations office as Pennsylvania was thinking about passing a law and give some in, input to that. So I've I've been pretty much involved since the end of June, working on 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 implementing NIL, and I've been part of a task force that started meeting twice a week in January. So I I probably spend four hours a week in, that I didn't historically spend working on NIL from, hey, reviewing the contracts, that uh, the deals that students are putting in to see if they're, 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 they're compliant with our policies in state law to make sure that they're not, that they're not in, in banned or prohibited categories to help educate the student athletes that we have. Because the first piece of any compliance program is really education. You can only, you can only comply with rules you know about, right? Right. You know. And my understanding right now is that every state as of now has kind of different rules but they're all using uh, an NCAA standard for this year or something like that. Um, no, I wish they were. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was – it would have been uh, much easier than that. The, much easier the, NCAA, doing that way. the NCAA came up with a standard, uh, although it's sort of – it relaxed the rules to create that. It wasn't exactly a, a standard. And every state has a slightly different law. I would tell you almost every state with – and I don't mean to pick on Mississippi, but I'll put one finger on Mississippi because they have the biggest deviation in the law. Almost every state has some categories that student athletes can't participate in NIL activity. So what we call vice categories, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, sports wagering, uh, casinos, uh, you know, a few vaping, a few other categories. The things that you would you would you would think for a co collegiate yeah. athlete, yeah. So historically, just don't go with institutional values. They're pretty easy. Every school has some conflicted categories, and they most of the state laws allow you to to favor or protect conflicted categories. So if you have a if you have a pouring rights deal on your campus with one of the soda or water companies, if you have a deal with Nike or or Adidas or Under Armour. 
those are usually carve outs that you don't you can keep student athletes from doing certain nil activity in that in those categories so so is that saying like say for instance the school it has a sponsorship with adidas and a kid goes out and gets a sponsorship with a new balance on his own on his own nil um who can have the right to restrict that yeah okay that's okay kind of depends on how, how they would approach that but they could have the right to say hey you can only do it in your time you can't do it you can't do it on school in in the school context you could never wear them in a game there, there are limitations each school could place on that and each school has taken probably a slightly different approach to that. And then I think the last really element of law is that almost every everyone has some measure of how do you disclose what you're doing to right. the school. Um, the NCA had talked about having a clearinghouse. Then that looked like it would be an antitrust violation because of the nature of the NCAA. So right now schools are sort of reviewing the deals and educating on their own. So I think most of the states that have laws are probably you know, they're, they're, they're all recognizable to each other mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of them read each other's laws, let's be honest. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, how do you do it? Let's let's take a look and see what the first one did and yeah. then kind of base it on that. And maybe there's some competition among the states in, into making their state law a little more favorable to the athletes as a recruiting option. Right, yeah, come on yeah. over to our school. And, and that, that, can help, that can help recruiting and, you know, conferences and, you know, yeah. people... So and we were talking about that the other day about uh, about the conferences and, and different schools having more advantage, uh, you know, getting people players' names out there and things like that, which was super interesting. Yeah, yeah that's actually really important. And as a lawyer, not necessarily in my integrity office role, but as a lawyer, it's really important to distinguish what NIL really is, as opposed to promoting yourself and also how the school might promote you. They're all they're all similar, but they're all just a little bit different. So if a school promotes you by, by putting your picture up on the web page or taking a billboard or putting out clips or featuring an interview of you, that school-based promotion, you're not going to get paid for that typically, but right. it could enhance your ability to, to, to create NIL opportunities. Uh, and it certainly would enhance your name, image, and likeness because you're seen. The and, and I did say... A couple of things, which so if you say if you have like a photo and you're in, say you're in your school uniform, or you know you're doing something like that, or you're on in your jersey, media or something. Are you, yeah. I mean, you can't you can't technically make any money if you're in your. You're not supposed to be able to do that. Yeah, most okay. most state laws have a rule about how you use the uniform and the logos and the marks, and almost no 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 student athlete wants to get billed for the misuse of the logos and marks because that could be really right. <laughs> <laughs> so generally, the school can promote you using using your name, image, and likeness in full uniform. You can use that more often more often than not in social media to promote yourself just generally. Right. You know, having twelve million TikTok followers is is is, is a bit of a of an advantage. But yeah. when you switch over on doing it for a sponsor or are giving lessons or are doing an appearance, suddenly that is what we would describe as NIL activity. And it was one of the historic prongs of kind of a pure amateur system that, that a lot of sports used to have. Amateur systems usually prevented you from paying for play or being paid to play. All right, that's still in effect in the NCAA. But the ability to use your name in other endorsements or use your fame related to endorsements, that's now on the table and, and available to kids in almost every state post the O'Bannon decision and the NCAA relaxing some of their rules that prohibited that um and i i see i see major advantages for for students uh, i mean with this in general just 
it, it's uh, got a, it's got a lot of neat it's got a lot of neat benefits that I think would go with it. I mean, I, I'm, this is not going to be an exhaustive list, but I, I, I I'd say to you there are three really cool beneficiaries of this. It certainly allows somebody who is a student to not have to worry about immediately making a decision on a professional career. You know, right. you, you know, well, if you're, athletes or, you know. comes from a family who, who has who has financial needs or being in school might be a hardship. If you're good, it allows you to benefit, at least in the in the short term, in ways that might might allow you to make a better decision or a more informed or a more delayed decision on whether I'm going to turn pro. Right. Watch and, you know, you get that full opportunity to get a full education. You don't have to go back for it, which is it might, it might keep you in school a little longer while on the first go around. And I think because you're suddenly in business for yourself a little bit, it may make you more attentive to the business aspects. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, Absolutely. When it's your when it's your money and your livelihood on stake, then you, you kind of want to pay a little bit more attention. As somebody who teaches a class in, 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 called representing the professional athlete, if I had a professional athlete in it, it would make all they'd be like, "Oh, that, that's my interest, huh?" Okay, yeah. you know, I don't know how how interested students are necessarily in uh, in contracts that have gross and nets, but if you if somebody offered you ten percent of, of sales, you probably really want to know quickly: Are you giving that ten percent of the, the gross, ten percent of the net? Who's calculating yeah. it? Right? How are yeah. we getting paid? When are we getting paid? Ten percent of what, sir? Ten percent of what? Let's get started. <laughs> And, you know, a two-page contract probably won't work for that. You, you'll want a 12. You, you'll yeah. want to define those terms really carefully. So and then, like, and you'll, then you'll need somebody to help you with that. You'll need that, that guidance and that support. You'll, from, you'll, need, you'll need advisors and you'll need advisors who you can trust. So there's a lot yeah. of good in this. I think it also helps student-athletes be a little more entrepreneurial, a little more bought in. And then I think the last winner in it, when you think about it, are good, is going to be college athletics itself. And I'm... I'm a, I was a wrestler in college. I, I wrestled through a little bit of, am, of the amateur wrestling. But Gable Steveson, who just won the gold medal in uh, in Tokyo, who has two years of wrestling eligibility left at Minnesota, will undoubtedly come home to Minnesota and wrestle. He won't have to make the choice of do I do I do I forego my college eligibility to make you know money money in MMA. Yeah. He can simply say, you know what, now that's allowed. I'm gonna and I'm gonna wrestle in college because college wrestling gets good crowds and generates really good importance for me. And absolutely, yeah. well, I think it I think it helps people make the choice. But I also think schools will be the winner because they'll just be greater interest in college sports. Right. Do yeah. you think it's also going to help these athletes? I mean, I think that now they're going to be getting contracts to sign now instead of just when they're a prof- You know, say if they go into the professional, maybe having you know that opportunity to look at a contract for the first time and say, oh. I think I think it's going to help them with their level of sophistication. Yeah, if yeah. they're you know if they're earnest about it and want to know about it, I think it could be really it's a really cool learning. We we've often talked about and, and hey, I argued for it for years. Uh, I had a dean who didn't who, who used to tell all our students at NYU, you did not come here to be athletes. You came here to be sports business professionals. And I'm like, yeah, but without athletes, we really don't have much of a sports business to, uh, right. to talk about. So. I wasn't so anti-athlete at the time, and, and I think it's important for athletes to understand just the, the amount of people who, who, are, who are building lives and careers around what they love. Well, and it's crazy because like now, and I remember growing up, uh, I, I couldn't like have a business, and, and I, I couldn't even think about a business or have a business while I was playing sports or anything like that. I mean, and I, didn't even, I just didn't even think about it because it wasn't a possibility. 
And it really does, like you think about it now and it opens your mind to that, like, wow, okay, there's so many different opportunities to start so many different things and, and wear those different hats, kind of like you've done, where you've been able to go and, and do so many different things. And entrepreneurs are just getting younger and younger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like I, there was so many opportunities and possibilities to make, make money. Well, and, and remember, most, most entrepreneurs fail a few times, so you got to have a little bit of resilience, but resilience is never a bad thing to breed into you and build into you. Got to have it. Not at all. Not right? At all. So... Yeah, no, I think it, I think it has a lot of advantage, and I do think I do think it has the tendency to be a win-win. I'm old enough to remember the '92 Olympics, which is the one when when the, most of the professionalism barriers went down in, in, in the in the '92 games, and just the sight of Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan outside, it's got to get it outside the stadium in Barcelona waiting to walk in, just yeah. really changed the tenor of those games. That, that the best oh, yeah. professional athletes in the sport were now were now coming to the Olympics, and that and and those games have, have, have prospered as a result. That maybe they prospered so much that they're almost too expensive to host. But that's another story. <laughs> even even European uh, sports, as, as far as basketball, has you know really benefited from you know Olympic games and bringing you know top tier athletes over to the NBA and and stuff like that. I think I think it's a, a great thing. It's created it's created it's created or at least. It's at least enhanced the global nature of all of our sports. Yeah, absolutely. So since since we're on the subject, uh, the Olympics. What what were you most excited um, about watching? What what event were you most excited about uh, watching this year? I'm an enormous Olympic geek in every form. So there's not <laughs> not really there's not really much about the Olympics I don't like. So I let's let's start with let's start with the questions. You know, from a risk and, 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 and function aspect and a legacy aspect, you know, holding these games probably would be hard to return much for on investment or, or on opportunity for Tokyo. So these games will be will go down as really a financial challenge. Uh, right. They were expensive. It'll really depend did Tokyo get more from it later. You know, you'll, it'll take years to calculate, but did Tokyo... Build things that hosted future events. Did they get new visitors? Do you want to go visit where the Olympics were? Don't don't years? most host country uh, host countries kind of struggle? Um, it's not as, they, it's not as far as struggle, but it's not as financially beneficial as most people might think that yeah, hosting almost, an Olympic. It's almost always a loss unless it's one in the United States. Uh, the, the U.S. The U.S. Olympic Games tend to make money, I think, in part because. We have 300 million people. We have corporations that want to be a part of it. And when they're on U.S. soil, the excitement is just that much higher. So yeah. the Atlanta games aren't really terribly memorable, but they made, they made plenty of money. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so, yeah, the Olympics in the U.S., the sponsor dollars are just heightened. The Barcelona games are the ones that are unique, but they're also those games that were the first of, of allowing the professionals. They were extraordinarily well-run. And they talk about a thing called the Barcelona effect. Barcelona made maybe a dollar off the game, or maybe they lost billions in, in infrastructure investment that isn't get calculated in that pile. It's hard to assess. But Barcelona became the second most visited city in the world for, for about 20 years after that. Wow. And if you wanted to go to Barcelona and you're listening to this, like, it was a good chance it was those Olympic Games that made you want to go there. So there are some really transformative stories. They're not all of them. But there are some transformative stories about the Olympics. So I'm a big Olympic geek. 
So I don't know whether we should have held these Olympic Games, but I, I would honestly tell you I don't think there's ever been Olympic Games that were more needed. Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, even yeah. if television yeah. viewership was way down, even if nothing has kind of – even if people didn't notice, we just needed that symbol of normalcy. It still brought, brought people together in different ways, like literally like – I mean just even knowing that you're watching this, there's other people watching this, it gave you that kind of a feeling of, okay, we're a little bit back to normal here. Like we're in the right direction here. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why television is upset it didn't do as well. There wasn't that mass viewing, particularly in the first week, when it starts to draw an audience in. So, you know, we'll have the controversy about Simone Biles, who put a lot of focus on mental health and performance yeah. and how important that is. And I think she's done great service to, 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 to her sport and to, to the community. So very hard to criticize that. We would, kind of without a swimming star, or Caleb Dressel kind of stepped out in the, in the second part of the week. And he was kind of fun in, a, in, in, in the way that he is. So, you know, that, that some things kind of went right in the Olympics. I thought the second week of the Olympics was pretty extraordinary. The track meet was was amazing, even if there were some bumbled performances, even if the U.S. didn't do well. I just it thought was the super exciting, yeah. things about about this Olympics, and it happened in the performance. So, if you want to think about Olympics, getting rid of all the other flop and just think about the athletes, this will go down as a pretty cool Olympics that was very needed. So. Yeah. I thought it was really, really good in that way. So I was very excited by these games. I, uh, I, I, I've written and talked and tweeted about Otto Bolden doing, announcing track and field and thinking there's nobody better. I, I, and I think of the amazing women. Um, you know, the U.S. The U.S. wrestling team did well, and I'm, I'm a former wrestler, so I, I like that and watch that. But I think the women who, who participated and, and, and had something to say through these games, Allison Felix... Uh, the Lilla Muhammad, Sydney McLaughlin, uh, I think Mo on the track are all extraordinary stories because it was women who performed particularly well, who yeah. were able to say, kind of proverbially, next man up, and yeah. make that exactly. story. And if you think about it in the U.S., we're, we're the inheritors of a remarkable tradition. Title IX, the equal opportunity for women in sports through, through elementary, through through high school and through college, is has been a unique thing in the U.S. and it's 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 made it's made U.S. women lovers and competitive in sport. And I think it's an awesome thing to think about and celebrate that legacy. You, you kind of want the men, you kind of want the U.S. men to pick it up a bit. Along yeah, right. It was the women who brought it home in this in this year, in a year when so much turmoil has been out there. And there are some interesting stories because some of the U.S. women have 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 turned their back on bigger sponsors and moved over to smaller sponsors. Right. And so that's a really interesting story to think about. What 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 drives a woman athlete? What are her opportunities in the marketplace? And what does she stand for? It is another remarkable thing to think about. So yeah, I was I was very taken by the great role models that young women have coming out of these Olympics. So yeah, they were pretty cool. I, 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 I'm ready for them to continue. So just let's yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, right? Me too. Me let's too. run them again. So <laughs> rewrite it. Rewrite. Don't have to wait. <laughs> no, I know. Right, waiting a few now. Yeah, four years. And the Olympic movement, and the Olympic movement, is going to benefit a little bit of, out of this triennial as opposed to quadrennial because I think they think Paris is going to be that kind of. Hopefully we're we're past COVID. We're we're a world recovered. Hopefully everybody's safe and healthy. 
and the world will want to go to Paris for that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't want to go there? I think that's going to be a. Who doesn't want to go there now? Yeah, I mean, and, and especially if it gets another boost like Barcelona did, like you said in the last one. You know, you get there, you do some stuff, and you're like, hey, look, now we got vacation spot, brings in revenue, all that good stuff. So Paris is impossibly beautiful. It's a, uh, it, it is, it is sort of the best place on earth, uh, at least, uh, at least in terms of the the beauty of the beauty that one has aesthetically there. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a cool place. Not haven't been there yet, but I definitely plan on. It. You definitely, you definitely want to go. And, I, and since you're young, I'll give you the best piece. If you can go with somebody you really like and care about, it's even more. It's even better. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. So, Leslie, yeah. sorry, but I'm not going with you. <laughs> yeah. No, you, I'll, I'll catch. I'll catch the next one. The Olympic games might be pretty cool. Yeah, I, t- I go to the Olympics with Wesley. I've got got it. Absolutely. And I represented some athletes in Olympic sports along the way, so that's always an interesting one because you're always thinking about kind of what is that name image and likeness deal and how do you and how do you put that deal together to carry them through you know they're going to make all their money they're going to get paid all their attention in one in one two week period how do you carry that through the next four years of their training yeah. right and a lot of them are so young they like what age are they starting off at like 14 15 these, it, these it, days and you know a lot of people talked about the pressure and, and, and you know that that's really an interesting thing to think about the olympics were delayed People had to move through that year of pressure and trials and other things. So, yeah, the pressure was like the pressure was five years of pressure, not four years of pressure now. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. That's five cool. Years. I love it. Um, so we were talking a little bit about um, a little bit earlier before uh, before you actually got on about uh, the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. And uh, and we didn't know too much about it. We kind of wanted to see if uh, if you could enlighten us a little bit on uh, on what you do there. And uh, I just I just got named to a working group in compliance there. But but it's important for everyone to know about about kind of the administration of amateur sports in the United States. So we have an we have a law in the United States called the Ted Stevens Act. He was a senator from Alaska who was very into the Olympic movement, and it basically created the U.S. Olympic Committee. Not as a government agency, but as a government chartered agency to, to huh. basically have the right to use the Olympic rings, to send teams to the Olympic Games and other international competitions. It created national governing bodies for sport. There are some 55 or so in the Olympic movement. And, you know, you probably had a card, USA Track and Field, USA Wrestling, USA Swimming. They're all, they're all national governing bodies, it, it, parts of the Olympic Committee. And then we found there were a lot of challenges. Uh, obviously, the sport of gymnastics had a number of crises, but no. other sports have had have had sexual harassment, youth protection issues as we go through it. And they created a, a, an entity called the Center for Safe Sport as an independent arbitrator of all issues in the Olympic movement. So the Center for Safe that's sport, a great idea. The Center for Safe Sport has jurisdiction over every athlete, coach, and member. Of the Olympic of, of the Olympic movement, some fourteen million people, I think, is the, wow. total, the total size of it. Now, most people don't know they might be members of that. If you ever entered a if you ever entered a uh, if you ever entered a swim meet as a kid and got a U.S. swimming card, you might be a member. Huh, <laughs> I'm gonna be covered. Yeah. So, all, all that stuff. so, so a lot of coaches, college coaches in particular, but others may not even be aware of their their relationship to it. But this body, the Center for Safe Sport, has control of, of 
and it has adjudicatory control over all these sports. So it's an unusual relationship. It's an extraordinary level of jurisdiction. And, and it's not, a lot, not a lot of people know about it. They're still a fairly new entity. They were created in 2018. So they, they operate as a, they operate as sort of a superconduct board in, in, in sexual harassment. But they also audit the national governing bodies to make sure those governing bodies are compliant. That's the group I'm kind of going to be working with. But I, I, I've been very interested in them and their jurisdiction and, and helping educate coaches and athletes as to what they can do and what they can't do and, and how, this new, how this new court and this new legal system or quasi-legal system sits, fits into the whole world of sports. So that's one area that I've been working on. I'm, on, I'm, also, on a, a govern, I'm also on the ethics committee of a national governing body, USA Weightlifting. So with another group of mostly lawyers, but some competitors as well, we meet to talk about ethical violations in the sport of weightlifting. So both those two jurisdictions are concurrent. So yeah, I've, I've kind of moved into, into kind of keeping some space in the Olympic movement too, because it's so interesting, frankly, it's such a huge, a huge entity. And I'm, I'm going to switch back to a business aspect of it, which doesn't mean to say that ethics aren't incredibly important. Because I think better business is enhanced by better ethics. But there are uh, there are 192. Actually, I might be wrong about that. There are 190, 187 nations in the United Nations General Assembly. And it might be 188. South Sudan came in. So, so 188 nations in the UN, and there are 206 in the Olympic movement. Well, so the Olympic movement has bigger reach than the UN. Yeah, a little more accepting. That's, that's and, incredible. And Coca-Cola has been a sponsor of the Olympics for for more than for for ninety seven years. Uh, so, and Coca-Cola is sold in two hundred and six, two hundred and five of those two hundred and six countries. What haven't they sponsored, right? <laughs> right. So, so, if you start to think about the value of sport, the value of the Olympics, it's a global platform. It's a global connector. So you, you can't get a Coke in North Korea. And so consequently, they're not, they're not selling it there. But yeah, yeah, everywhere else, Coke, Coke, McDonald's, all travel on that Olympic platform. Wow. That is incre- that's really incredible to actually think about. I mean, it's really, and, and think of how much it's gone through because, oh, my God. 90 plus years. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit what else you got going on. I know you have a, uh, a new a chapter and a new book, a new yeah, textbook. I, yeah, I, I haven't quite written a book, but I wrote a textbook chapter. It's a sport, yeah, fi- yeah. It's a sport finance textbook. Uh, it's published by Dr. Karen Weaver. It just came out. It's called Sports Finance. Awesome. Not, awesome. not the most imaginative title, but it's a well-worth-it book. I like it. I wrote a chapter on stadium finance, and it, it really takes apart both why we why we've replaced all the stadiums in the United States or all the major professional stadiums or most of the major professional stadiums over the last thirty years. Huh. Uh, there are still some exceptions, um, but Dodger Stadium was a new stadium when I was growing up, and now it's one of the oldest stadiums left in baseball. I'm a Dodger fan. <laughs> we won't replace we won't replace Camden Yards. I, I'm sorry, we won't replace Fenway, and we won't replace uh, uh, Wrigley. Because they're historic, but they right. basically have gutted them and built so much around it to create revenue. So yeah, it's, really about, it's really about this drive to build new stadiums to capture fan dollars in a new and in, in, in a more in a more interesting way, and how that influences just all the decisions of the franchise. Well, it's funny, you know, you go to you go to a, a Padre game, 
and you go and you could walk around the whole game and not see any of the game because there's so much stuff now in the stadium. You got bars over here. You got you got rock climbing or whatever you got over here. You throw a pitch into here. It's it's crazy. You know, it's all these new things that they're throwing in and and adding. It's it's pretty crazy. I haven't been to Raider Stadium, but I can only imagine. Uh, I think it's Allegiant Allegiant Stadium yep. um, and Las Vegas. You, it's to keep you, it's to keep you engaged and it's to keep you interested. But it's also to get more of your spin and to keep you yeah. coming back. And yeah. you know, some of it's just we don't we don't want to sit in our seats. We want to move about. You are right. also going to see. This is something that's actually fallen on me a lot. So I've learned a lot more about it than I would ever want to know in real life because I'm not a better. But that the confluence of sports betting and sports entertainment is really coming fast. That that was legalized, you know, three years ago in 2018 with the Supreme Court decision uh, that allowed that allowed states to to to, to, hand, to legalize sports betting. And so far, we have sports betting legal in 20 states on its way to legalization in another 10. And it's now really, you know, the idea that we would talk about placing bets. On in-game situations are real, and and obviously that presented a challenge to me at Penn State, and something I had to learn a lot about in the process, and how we had to educate our student athletes and our trainers and our and our in our in our leadership essentially on how complex this is. Well, that's how fast things can change, and you got to kind of be the one to change with it, and then teach it. <laughs> yeah, really it. I, I've got to I've got to watch the next crisis come, and I've got to be able to, to tell everybody how we deal with it. You know. Absolutely. Not a guarantee that we will, but at least to recognize it early so that we're not blindsided and and, 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 and we're not too slow in reacting if it does happen. Right. And, and you're never going to catch, I feel like, everything right away because things do change fast. Nobody puts out all the information right away, I feel like. Uh, you've really got to do research and, and kind of understand it to be able to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, it still leaves me. It still leaves me a little surprised by the amount of sports that a college offers that get bet on. Um, I, I, I'm still always shocked that betting on baseball and betting on softball, because I'm not even sure how you bet on them. Like, have, you, have you ever seen the odds? It's like, I don't even understand what they mean. Right. <laughs> and, and, and sure, your baseball team's going to lose, you know, 60 times a year. Even a good team loses 60 times. Yeah. So it's always hard to think about how they take action on that. And then also to watch how prop bets, proposition betting, that don't affect the outcome of the contest are popular. Yeah, so like who's going to get the first hit yep. in the second quarter? Or, yeah, you know. some weird stuff like that. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and if you have integrity in your title, you're always worried, is, can that be manipulated? Yeah, so, exactly. And everything so, can be manipulated. Like who's going to walk out with their hat backwards or something like that? Something yeah, simple. That someone can easily change. The good news about it and the pros, why, why the pro leagues have it a little bit better than colleges do in that space is – you're not going to risk a six hundred and fifty thousand dollar NFL contract to take a to take a small bet. Yeah, I was actually I was going to ask you about that. It might be a little bit off, but I was really really interested to see. So, and big bets are easier to monitor, right? It's right. Just, um. So is there so these these guys that are able to get the NIL and, and able to get money through that if they get in trouble during school. Does that have anything to do with NIL? Can they say, hey, look, you, I mean, they can't really say you can't, you got to stop collecting from these guys. You're not really on the team. Say they got in trouble or something like that. I mean, that's yeah. a weird situation, I feel like. So it does It does create a connect, an interconnectivity of your play to your to your value, right? You, you wouldn't have yeah. any value if you weren't in the team or you weren't playing. 
Right. So, so one of the things that, that, and, but it's also clear in the NCAA rules, you can't get paid to play. So one of the key understandings, kind of a hard piece to educate, but while, while NIL is a specific group of external activity done outside the university with third parties, I think a lot of universities are saying, look, what you can't contract to them or promise to them is your playing time, your participation, your success. So ultimately, that's a part of the educational process is your relationship to the team and your ability to, to obey the team rules and your ability to stay on the field and be eligible is between the university and the student and the student. And, and you'd, you'd and hope that that would give people a um, you know motivation to be good and you know to stay stay well. Anything off, you, know? you do in NIL is between you and the and the third party. And you can't reach over to us and give me guarantees about that part of it, right? So yeah. that's, a, that's a complex piece. It's something we're working on and in writing and trying to get into, into educate all our student athletes about policy. But it is, it is complex because nobody really broke that down when they started thinking about that. Right. And, and when I first started hearing about this, I mean, I, I was like, how is it going to even be paid? I wasn't even thinking. And I, I was thinking, OK, well, is it going to be like coming from the, the, the stadium, the, the no, attendance? It's, it's coming from third parties. Yeah. who are contracting to the athlete. And, and obviously there are some really good ones if you think about it. Some college athletes are very famous. Some are, are locally famous and influencers. There's a whole bunch of different reasons why you choose to work with a student athlete, even maybe more than a professional athlete. Maybe cost would be one factor, but maybe reach would be two. So there are all reasons you do it. But yeah, it's 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 really if you think about it on one hand, the school has a relationship on the on the on the left, the player is in the middle, and then third parties for NIL activity are on the outside. But yeah, you can't reach back. And I one of my favorite stories is I I'm good friends with a guy by the name of Don McPherson. Don was the runner up for the Heisman Trophy, he was the Maxwell Trophy winner. Don, Don and I are both now in our 50s, but uh, Don was one of the greatest college players of his time. And, and all he could think about is, he played at Syracuse, all he could think about is, now with NIL, I mean, my God, we're beating Colgate 49 nothing at the half, they take me out. <laughs> How do I stay? I'm losing money. I'm, I'm losing money. That's right. <laughs> instead of having, instead of having seven touchdown passes, I've, I've got to, I could have 14. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. and there goes those prop bets again. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we don't want to take any of those prop bets, but yeah, but there is, you can easily you easily just picked up on that, Wes. It's like there is an interconnection of these things, and to some degree, everybody has to be cognizant of how that comes together. Yeah, yeah. and that is one of the changed parts of our world. And and again, if you're a pro player with an eight hundred thousand dollar minimum contract in the NBA or or six fifty in in football or 550 in baseball, yeah, you're not going to risk it on, on, on what, what a famous law professor I, who I worked with, Arthur Miller, called small beer. But, right. you, but it, is, it is a bigger risk when you're not making a whole lot of money. So the one thing I'm hoping NIL does is student-athletes who are doing well with NIL will want to protect their NIL. Right. Yeah. And, not, and they should. Yeah. Not, and not get fired, for, not, not essentially get cut from their team because they, they messed up by, by yeah. each action will be thought about a little bit, a little bit yeah. more, in and, and that's <laughs> what I was detail. thinking. Yeah, maybe hold, hold, uh, hold guys a little bit more, you know, accountable. accountable yeah, for, for, for I, I hope, I hope, I hope when when players have have a financial incentive, they they care more. Is the is the part about it? And and you know, look, young people are young people, and they're smart. They're smart and they're dumb in equal measures. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You learn and grow. I'm older, and I'm still smart and dumb in equal measures. I can tell it. I just have to learn about in a smaller sense of what I'm dumb at, right? It's like, yeah. Like, you wouldn't want to see me play things. You wouldn't want to see me try to try to do physical things the way I once did. <laughs> you know, I, I have I have a career-earning wrist injury from yoga. I mean, who has a yoga? <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Yeah, those are the things that we think about as we do these things. Man, I love it. Well, I, you know, I wish we had hours and hours with you. We're, that time flew by so it fast. Really and, and I really, I really hope that, you know, that we could get you on. Uh, again here, but I mean, in closing, uh, any, any advice for uh, for some of these these student athletes that are coming in uh, uh, that you could possibly give them to, to push them forward here? I, I look. I think for everybody who's young, there are opportunities. I think the most. This is going to sound like terrible advice from a from a, a lawyer in his mid fifties, but the really trans power, the transformational power of your education is your education. You know, I've worked with pro athletes. I've worked with them. And, and I know a lot who, who finish their careers with not enough money. The idea that you're going to change, you're going to earn enough through play, probably not going to happen. That, that it's going to be enough that you'll never have to work again. It'll just give you more choices. But I do think the transformational power, the ultimate choice power is education. And I, I love the idea. The thing that made me happiest as a professor, it makes me happiest as a lawyer, is how I link education and, and, and or higher education with sports. And that's the coolest thing. So if you love sports and you love education, there are opportunities to pursue both, the opportunity to use both to get to get more choices and more options. That's really the cool thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well yeah, that was absolutely awesome. Um, and just from our point, it's like it's it's a pleasure being a part of this organization. Um, there's great writers, uh, great people, great leadership, and you know, in their communities, and you know, it's it's really honored to be a part of this. And thank you for sitting down with us, and you know, giving us some time. These t-shirts are they? Yeah, I love them. Are, 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 are they are they sweat wicking? Can we get the sweat wicking? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> well, we'll have to we'll have to have uh, have uh, have a send you one so you get one yeah. for yourself over there. Yeah, well, you I can wear it for the next time we uh, we we get on here. I, I will definitely come back, and I'm I'm honored to do this. I hope this was a fun fun time for you. It was for me. Oh, it was amazing. It absolutely, absolutely. was. It absolutely was. And uh, I'm gonna go ahead and stop.